Welcome to the So We Speak podcast. So this is our second podcast we've gotten to do, and this is Cole Fakes. I'm here with my dad, Terry Fakes, and we want to talk about a couple issues this morning, the first one being the recent Revoice Conference. Now, not everybody knows what the Revoice Conference is, so give us a little overview. Set the table for us here. Well, I think the Revoice uh, Conference was an attempt to bring together Christians who identify as LGBTQ, in other words, gay Christians, and begin to address some of the issues around dealing with that in the church. I'm going to start by saying a couple of really positive things. First of all, I think there were some helpful and some unhelpful things that came out of this conference, but let me commend this conference for a couple of things. First of all, they began with a biblical position on the issue of the homosexual lifestyle. I appreciate that that was their starting point. Because frankly, without the starting point of an agreement on a biblical position, we're talking past each other. The second thing I would commend them for is I do believe the church needs to have discussion about how to walk out. How does it look to faithfully, biblically follow Jesus Christ when one experiences same-sex attraction? So I, I really commend the conference from their biblical position and then initiating this conversation. Yeah, obviously this is a really, really incendiary topic, and the the conference has been incendiary. And even though it, it is within very specific, you know, traditional Christian understanding of sexuality, put on by the the uh, uh, some the people that teach at PCA schools, which is the conservative branch of the Presbyterian Church. Right. People writing for the Gospel Coalition. You know, there's a lot of really solid groups that are engaged in this conference. And I'm a little bit less congratulatory, a little bit less optimistic about the conference <laughs> probably than you are. But I will say this. I, I think they started with good premises. Right. And I think one of those is, what does it look like to talk about gay Christians within a biblical framework on sexuality? So one of the things they have on the website, one of the things that all the speakers have agreed with is sexuality, as far as uh, any kind of lifestyle, should take place within a marriage between a man and a woman. So every kind of sexual immorality outside of that is out of bounds. And I think that's a really great place to start. What troubles me, though, is how they've construed identity around the topic of sexuality. I agree with that. I think the first place that you see disagreement coming in is the very term itself, gay Christian. Now, in speaking to friends of mine who identify with same-sex attraction, they typically, and this is just in my experience, don't like the phrase gay Christian for a practical reason, and that is, what do you actually mean? In other words, does gay in, in your vocabulary mean someone who is engaged in a homosexual lifestyle? When you read that in the newspapers, that's typically what it means. Or, on the other side of the spectrum, does it mean someone who has same-sex attraction but is a Christ follower and has committed not to follow up on that? So they really struggle with the term, what do you mean by gay Christian, can mean very different things to different people. Yeah, I think it's this is a, this is a question of wisdom. I, I think there is a way of construing the term gay Christian if you're in a vacuum that, that probably is a healthy biblical description. But what you see people like Rosaria Butterfield and Denny Burke writing about is the cultural connotation of that term is not something that is biblical. It's not something that is sound. 
And I just wonder, are they trying to influence too much? Why adopt a term that is so culturally loaded? And, in, and on their website, they don't seem to be, they're not tiptoeing around this. So they right. use the term gay Christian. They use the term sexual minorities, which uh-huh. is a, a, a cultural term that does not mean anything close to a Christian understanding of sexuality. Right. So one of my questions is, is it wise or is it even biblical to describe someone as a gay Christian, which is not which is not limited to sexuality. I mean, there's other concepts like this that it's that we wouldn't use to describe a Christian. Right. You know, I'm going to give you my thinking on this as it stands right now. And that is, I think it's certainly, I think it's unwise, but what really raises a red flag for me, and I'm not saying that's what everyone who uses this term believes, but here's my red flag. I know you and I are both familiar with Jonah Goldberg's recent book, Suicide of the West. And in that book, he raises serious concerns about identity politics and tribalism in American culture and American politics. And what his basic contention is, is that dividing ourselves into identity groups or tribes, if you want to call it that, is really undermining the very fabric of our nation and our founding principles. Now, you may agree or disagree with how serious this is, but I haven't met anyone who thinks that identity groups and tribal groups is a good thing for American culture. Let me transfer that idea now to the church. Two fundamental uh, commitments of mine. Number one, the idea of tribalism or identity groups is completely antithetical to Jesus' teaching and what the church is about. We find a unity and an identity in Christ, regardless of our previous identities. So in the first place, I think the idea of gay Christian, again, I'm not accusing everyone who uses that term of being divisive, but it raises the flag that we might be importing identity groups from the culture. The second thing that concerns me about that is if indeed we do begin to think of ourselves as identity groups, a gay Christian or a fill-in-the-blank Christian, I think that will seriously undermine the unity of the church, and I believe it has the potential to destroy our witness to the culture. The other thing that I think is interesting culturally is we're definitely in a moment where we don't want to condemn any group of people based on something like sexuality. Now, there's other things that the culture is very willing to condemn, and and we're seeing kind of a public shaming moment in, in our culture that is alarming. But on the sexual front, the tendency is to not to not tell anybody that they're outside the bounds for anything. And what the Revoice Conference looks like to me is a slide within the Christian church of trying to include a group of people that have previously been excluded. And yes. so part of the compassion that drives this kind of conference is, well, what can we do to make up for historic injustices to the gay community? Right. And that is something that, that, that I really am compassionate about. Agreed. We, as a church in general, and I think this is probably better than you see you know, in the national media, we haven't done the world's best job of thinking through what it means to love gay people, to love all the LGBT you know, groups and subgroups. That's not something that the church has excelled in. But the question is, is this the best way to make up for that? Is this the best way to include those people? And I think when you cross that line of saying, hey, we're, we're not just going to accept you, we're now going to accept your chosen identity, 
That to me doesn't seem like the best thing that you could do for this group of people. I agree with that. I think compassion is a given. Any approach that we have that lacks compassion is wrong. The question comes, how best to show compassion and provide healing? There Mm -hmm. has been tremendous pain amongst people who have a same-sex orientation, gender dysphoria, and the church, I agree with you, we have not known how to handle that well and have added to that pain. The question comes, how do we bring Christ's healing power to bear? My contention is this, and I believe you see it played out in our culture. I sure hope we don't play it out in the church. And that is, by separating into identity groups, we actually promote pain. That's not the path to healing. Jesus Christ saying, despite our differences of ethnicity or whatever it may be, we unite in our identity, our common identity in Jesus Christ. I will contend that's actually the only way to find healing. So breaking into identity groups, as you're just talking about, I think actually is going to lead us, I think we we hope it will lead us to healing. I think it'll lead us to more conflict in the end. I absolutely agree with that. I think It'll be interesting to see what the fallout is from this. I think you know the immediate response has been twofold. There, there is a surprising number of conservative, thoughtful Christians who have really supported this conference. I think a lot of that is solidarity to people like Wesley Hill, uh, who who have spoken at this, and you know a lot of what I've read from him has been good stuff. I, I think agree. that's I've powering a lot of this, but. A lot of the other response has been a more generous inclusion of the LGBTQ community. So f- just for example, one of the things that I've seen on Twitter and, uh, and on blogs is, well, what about the T in LGBTQ? So they, they've advertised this as gay Christians, but they've also used the, the, the blanket term queer. So one of, the, you know, one of the most incendiary things of this whole deal is yeah. on their website, one of the speakers in their bio in the description of their talk, said something to the effect of, we want to discover what queer treasures will be brought into the New Jerusalem. Uh-huh. So that that phrase is probably intentionally incendiary, yeah. first and foremost. But secondly, if you're going to frame it like that, now all of a sudden, we can't just talk about gay Christians. We need to talk about transgender. We need to talk about... Uh, non-binary. We need to talk right. about you know the the whole panorama of genders and that kind of thing that's going on. Well, that seems like a pretty clear line. I mean, the the transgender group wasn't initially, at least explicitly, involved in this conference. Right. But if you're going to say something like that, now you open the box of dealing with all of these orientations and all of these cultural categories that don't necessarily apply to what you're originally talking about. Right. You're confusing a lot of categories there. We had to let individuals be individuals in the sense that not one size doesn't fit all in in these situations. But I think that gets to the idea of how do we as a church walk it out, and I appreciate that conversation. But before we go there, can we go back to Wesley Hill for a moment? I have enjoyed some of his books, and I appreciate what he was trying to do, and you might want to describe this, on the idea of spiritual friendships. He Basically, if I understand this right, what Wesley Hill is trying to do is, is starting from the position that marriage is between a man and a woman, but he's saying, but deep friendships can happen between people of the same sex, whether they are homosexual or heterosexual. What's Wesley Hill's approach to this? So this would this would kind of be a, a good segue into my second 
critique of the Revoice Conference. So the, the first one would be that they are dealing with identities that are not biblical categories, as we've discussed. But the second one is the Bible does have identity categories. They're just not the same. So, for example, we don't want to we don't want to say that this is a different version of identity politics, but we do want to say in the Bible there are kind of two identities: repentant followers of Christ and non-repentant non-followers of Christ. And we we shy away from any clear categories in our culture. I mean, just just saying that you're probably right. thinking of counterexamples of right. you know who might be. Well, what about a seeker that's you know on the verge of accepting you know the, the moment after you believe that kind of thing. But but in the Bible, it's pretty clear. You have believers and you have non-believers, and what constitutes the difference is repentance. Now, repentance is a lifelong process. It's something exactly. that looks different for different people, but. My challenge to Revoice, and and what I think applies to Wesley Hill's writings, is what if we started instead of talking about gay Christian, transgendered Christian, what if we took everybody wherever they were individually, and we said, why don't we start with repentance? So repentance is now going to be our category where we begin to talk about healing sexually. So if you look at what Wesley Hill's done, so in his book, Spiritual Friendship, he talks about what it would be like to overcome a lot of the historic problems with the church and homosexuals through re-understanding what friendship is. Deep, meaningful friendships could be the pathway to celibacy for those who have a a gay orientation or any kind of sexual Uh orientation outside the biblical norm. So he asks this question. If we rethought friendship, deep, Uh meaningful, biblical friendships, could that be a way of coming alongside people like him who have uh, gay attractions, but but, but they've decided to be celibate? Now, I like that idea, and I, I think there are a lot of good books out there. Brett McCracken has a book called Uncomfortable. It's a really good book about friendship, about community. And I love that idea, but but where he goes with it, I think, is troubling. So the best response to this book I've seen is from Doug Wilson. And what, what he points out is Wesley Hill is playing on and references C.S. Lewis's version of friendship. And so C.S. Lewis, is, kind of his famous thing is friendship begins the moment that you look at somebody else and you say, you too, or me too. Exactly. It's, it's that, yeah. you know, shoulder to shoulder, we have the same interests, we have the same vision, and you take off together into a friendship. But what C.S. Lewis always keeps central is friendship exists shoulder to shoulder, side by side. Uh-huh. Where I think Wesley Hill goes wrong is he rethinks friendship in a face-to-face manner that is biblically reserved for marriage, for marriage relationships. Yes. Now, one of the stories that he tells in the book, and, and he's got a comment uh, magazine piece on this as well, is he, he tells this story of having a really, really good friend who was heterosexual, starts a relationship with this girl, decides he's going to get married, and, and Wesley Hill is crushed. And one of the things he realizes is he wasn't just friends with this person. He was romantically attracted to this person. Let me interject. I appreciate his transparency and his honesty about this. I think he raises an important point. And what you're saying is he had allowed that to be a that face-to-face relationship when he thought he was having a shoulder-to-shoulder. Exactly. And, 
And so my caution would be the the book and a lot of what's going on at the Revoice Conference comes across in the same way that you might have a conversation with, um, if you've been in youth ministry or college ministry, you've fielded this question before, how far is too far? And that's just not the right question. If you right. sit down with a 16-year-old and he asks you a question, how far is too far? There, There's no good answer to that question. <laughs> Wrong question. Yeah, because the question itself is flawed. The way that we deal with sin is not to go right up to the very edge and then establish a boundary that keeps us from the big sin. Right. In, instead, what we want is we want a biblical value of purity, of celibacy, of honor, of respect. Those are much better ways to frame the question. When it comes to spiritual friendship, this is kind of the same thing, not necessarily on a physical sexual level, right. but on an emotional level. How far is too far emotionally? How much can you be like a marriage or substitute for a marriage, but still call it friendship? I see that as problematic. Right. I, I, you're right. It's a slippery slope. And it's really approaching the question from the wrong side. I do understand that. It's not so much I would say, well, you are wrong or you are sinning. It's just that your approach is going to lead you into some really dangerous territory. It's one of those, you know, they say what, whatever you tolerate, the next generation will accept. Right. And, 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 we, and we look at the way that ideas grow and evolve over time. It seems very difficult to me. And I, I don't think this is a knockdown argument, but, but it's certainly a piece of my pushback on this. I don't see this pattern sustaining Bible-believing, um, affirming sexual morality from a biblical perspective into the next generation. I, I just don't think that you can set this as the standard and expect people to keep the biblical commitments that you have down the road. Well, this may be a little bit of a tangent. I agree with what you're saying. I think that trying to replace marriage with spiritual friendships is a flawed idea. But I do like the idea of the community of the church. I'm going to go to the other side a little bit and maybe help us frame up our responsibility. I think it's been said before, and I'll attribute it if I could remember it, but it's not original to me, but it's this, is that we have to love, this is actually true for everyone, we just happen to be talking about Christians who have a same-sex attraction and they are walking out celibacy in their life. We have to love them better than the homosexual community, the cultural, secular, homosexual community loves them. And to me, that expands this from a same-sex attracted person, a Christian and another same-sex attracted Christian. How are you and I or heterosexuals in the church having deep friendships? Mm-hmm. In other words, providing that, that multiplicity of friendships and community and family in the church, I think that could be a huge antidote to the cultural attraction to same-sex attracted I think this. I, I think this is the question. I really think for Christians, for churches, for people in ministry, for people with gay friends, this this is the issue. How do we as a church do what we're supposed to do? How do we walk alongside, love unconditionally, provide a compassionate and welcoming place for people who feel like they don't belong? You know, one of the things that I think is so fascinating, and we, we've got a post on this on the website, is the latest season of Queer Eye, which is now the most popular show in America, for these reasons, I think, yes, is advancing this notion of homecoming. You know, in episode one of season two, the theme is finding a home. 
And so as you watch that episode, one of the heartstrings that they're pulling is everybody needs to belong. And they're advancing a narrative saying, hey, we can show you what belonging looks like better than the church. Exactly. And they're using church terminology and, you know, they're, they're conflating the narratives and you can read the piece, you know, on that. But it speaks to this point. As a church, to be successful, we need to tell a better story. We need to provide a more um, trusting and welcoming environment without affirming things that are clearly outside of the biblical lines. So that would lead me to kind of the final thought I want to talk about on this is, Within the framework of repentance, how do we navigate a topic like this? So what does repentance even look like in some of these scenarios? I think that's a question that's really hard when the rubber hits the road from a church side of things. You're not going to deal with the easy cases. You're going to deal with the difficult that's cases. Right. So how do we go about doing that? That uh, gets back to my second point that I, I would commend the conference for, and that is raising the issue of given that we have a biblical understanding of this, and we are speaking of same-sex attraction in a context of take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me, a repentant Christian, which is all of us who have turned, repented, turned from who we used to be to become more Christ-like. I think the idea of how does that walk itself out is a discussion that we need to continue. And my mind's not set on that, but I'll give you an analogy that I'm playing through in my head right now. If you think about uh, one of the, quote, messy situations that sin in our lives leads to, and all of our sin leads to messy situations, but a divorced couple. So you have a man and a woman, they're divorced, they remarry, they have children. They come to the point of being convicted by the scriptures and saying, "Uh, what I did in the past was sinful. Divorce is not in God's plan, and yet it's not the unforgivable sin. I have repented of that. What does repentance look like in that situation? I'm going to paint with a broad brush and say that in the church in general, we typically don't say, okay, divorce this woman. have no idea what to do with the children. Go back and reconcile. We don't deny the truth that divorce is not God's plan, but what we say is, what does it look like to walk forward from that point. Mm -hmm. I think that could be a useful analogy into a situation, same same difficult situation, where you have, well, let's just choose two women, same-sex orientation, they are married, they have adopted children, and so they have children together, and they come to the same conviction of the truth and repent and say, we will be Christ followers. How then do they walk that out in a faithful way? And I've been really trying to think that through. I don't know how far the Revoice Conference got on that. I feel I feel like they did got off on some tangents that weren't helpful, but I believe that topic is helpful. Do you have any thinking around that idea of what does repentance look like? Yeah, this is hard. I mean, it's just, this is where I think we have to be comfortable allowing the Spirit to guide us in individual situations. And this really comes down to, do we think that God is active and speaking and guiding in individual circumstances? So in in the example of this couple, do we think that if we pray and if we repent and if we have wise counsel involved, that we can come to God's will for this situation? I I affirm that. I I think that we can. But I don't know exactly what that would look like in that situation. Exactly. I do think that's where the dialogue would be helpful. 
For example, though, I think we're going to get out of our comfort zone just a little bit because here's something I've already encountered in several cases like this. The appearance from the outside to someone who does not know these this couple or these people may look on the surface like, hey, that's not a biblical environment. And mm-hmm. yet, the God who sees their heart, and even, say, you and I, who know them well, know that, well, I know that looks non-standard, but actually, these are repentant Christ followers living a celibate life and trying to do so in the midst of a situation that isn't perfect. Again, none of our situations are perfect. This is actually how all of us are walking out the Christian life. I think the appearances could get in the way. I mean, what do you think about that? And I do respect the fact that appearances matter. They are part of our witness. Especially when you're on the side of things where you're employed by a church, you're, you are thinking about the church broadly and generally. It's easy to think about one individual and walking with them and you understand their situation, so you expect everybody else to understand their situation. And and on the flip side of that, you can't be a slave to public opinion as you work exactly. through God's grace. That's just right. God's grace is opposed to our cultural norms. And I think that's a difficult thing when you're thinking about big groups of people. It's easier in the case of a small group or one-on-one with a couple or something like that. You know, I, there's a lot that, that goes on here, and I think the conversations that we're having are helpful. We're not far enough into this yet where we've seen a good spectrum. You know, there, there, there's not a lot of like market research that's being done among churches doing this right. And I'll be interested to see over the next decade or so, what does repentance look like? Is there kind of a general pathway for what repentance looks like among married same-sex couples with kids, among people who have gone through a complete uh, gender reassignment surgery. Yes. What does it mean to repent from that? that? I don't know that I have a great answer for that, but what I do think is we have biblical counsel that can kind of envelop that situation. One of those would be repentance. You know, maybe a, a concluding thought from my perspective, because I too am excited as we walk this out with, a first of all, a biblical point of view. I believe truth matters. Jesus began his preaching. If anybody ever wonders, what was Jesus preaching when he went from village to village? Repent. There's a new way of living. Repent. The kingdom of God is here. So I do believe that truth matters and that repentance is essential. And at the same time, we're asking ourselves, and grace, and compassion. How does that walk out? At the risk of sounding like I'm plugging something that you wrote, you know, one of the most helpful things to me about this was a post you have on So We Speak. I forget the title, but it was basically about hospitality. And in there, you had a phrase that I think could be a paradigm. It could be a guide for us in how to do this. You said, basically, that God has drawn a line of truth, and we are called to love across the line. And you call that hospitality. I think that might be an extremely useful guide to us in how to walk out the biblical truth with hospitality and compassion, and that is love. Feel free to love across the lines. So to shift gears a little bit, um, we want to talk broadly. This is probably one of the bigger things I think that's been going on as far as implications for the church and that kind of thing. But what do you think is the most exciting thing going on in the world right now? What are, what's the news that you're following? What do you think is uh, worth commenting on? That is a great question. Uh, in, in a big, 
kind of maybe too philosophical point of view. What I see happening in the world is a repetition of a lot of history. I am very keenly watching China has imperialistic ambitions, and I see China moving into a power vacuum in the South China Sea and extending its influence. I look at Russia. Vladimir Putin has made no secret of his desire to reconstitute the Russian Empire. You see the rise of Islam in the Middle East, and at the moment, the most influential form of Islam is the Shiite Iranian form, which is also very, quote, imperialistic. Into this comes the United States, a nation that still has a deep Judeo-Christian ethic and a desire to do, in my view, for everything that's wrong with this country, an attempt to do justice and right in the world. And I see a huge clash. And while we as Americans are fighting one another, I mean, we live in a very partisan, no one would disagree with this, we're very partisan, there's a huge opportunity to, in my view, as a Christian, to do God's work in this world, to do justice and show mercy. And I'm, I'm really watching how will that play out. I think it's fascinating. The, the geopolitics that are going on right now is, it has everybody guessing. You, you add the, the tariffs on top of that. And, you know, one of the things I'm wondering, and I'm certainly not a, a, a diehard Trump supporter, but, you know, just accepting the fact that he is our president and kind of is who he is, I wonder what's going to happen with China. I mean, you hear people criticizing him. He doesn't know what a tariff actually is. He doesn't know what a trade deficit actually is. And, and those things may be true. But the story that I don't think will be written is what would have happened with China if you gave this another 50 years without Trump? You know, yes. what What would have happened? Because we're going to see a realignment in the, in the global order of things around these tariffs, rightly right. or wrongly. But the question I'm really interested in is, is does it make a historic difference? It, yes. it, now that China has become a global power, now that their economy has risen outside of kind of developing the developing world and they are a, uh-huh. a genuine contender, although weaker, than the United States, my question would be without this, like let's say you know Hillary had, had won the presidency, what, what would the implications be in 50 years with China? Well, and that's a great question because China does plan in a 50-year cycle, yeah. unlike Americans. I read Henry Kissinger's book. He's one of my favorite commentators on geopolitics, very bright, very incisive. You may disagree or agree with him on issues. I do. But he wrote a book called On China. And in that book, one of the things that he said that stuck out to me is China looks strong and is culturally strong and strong in a lot of ways, but they are far weaker economically than we realize. And so leaving aside whether Trump is brilliant or Trump is a loose cannon, leave that aside because your question is substantive. Attacking China economically, if you think about this being a struggle between the United States and China, I realize not everyone thinks that, but many people believe China is the greatest long-term threat to American security, is it's actually a pretty smart move to uh, influence China economically because mm-hmm. that seems to be where they are weakest as a nation. Again, I'm not commenting on whether this is a brilliant move by our president mm-hmm. or a loose move, but it seems in light of what Kissinger's criticism of China is, it's probably an effective move. I it, suppose we'll see. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah. And uh, you know, there's, there, there's, there's commentary on both sides that I find persuasive. It, it'll be interesting to see uh, over the next couple of months 
with the tariffs, with the politicking, with the deal making, you know, what, what ends up coming of this? Well, let me throw one back at you. Uh, domestically, in the United States, what are some of the most interesting or one of the most interesting things you're following domestically? Well, I think I think one of the biggest issues that domestically would be the midterm elections. I mean, I think that's kind of dominating everything. Everything is pointing towards that. It's not just what do we think about the immigration you know problems that we have. It's right. how are the immigrations? How is the border crisis going to influence you know the GOP come the midterms? Right. So I think every, everything is kind of geared towards that. In some ways, I'm cynical about that. It when that's looming a couple of months away, whether it's the Kavanaugh. Uh, confirmation. confirmation hearings or immigration or Trump or polling, you know, all of those things, the rise of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, it's all geared towards that. And so that makes it opportunistic as, as opposed to genuine. So we're not really talking about the border crisis because we care about people. And like I said, that sounds very cynical. But you notice you're not hearing anything about the border right now. Why? Because the political opportunism has passed. So now it's the gritty work of actually reuniting those kids with their families. And so nobody really wants to cover that. You know, right. e- even though all the posturing said we really care about the families. And I, I think people legitimately do. Right. From a political news cycle standpoint, why are we not hearing anything about that? Be- because the opportunity is passed. Yes. And, right. and the, the thing I would criticize about our media moment here is that's how every single thing is going to be from now until November. Right. That's where I really do think there's a difference between being informed and conformed. Because from a Christian perspective, at the risk of sounding sappy or sentimental, Christians actually care about people. Right. And we see the politics of the issue as a means to care for people. Whereas I do think in the secular political world, you see the people as a means to do the politics. I really think we do bring a more genuine perspective to the public square. Absolutely. I, I think that's that's 100% right. We'll, we'll see how that plays out. I think things are getting better, uh, but mm-hmm. you're not getting a lot of coverage. Now, the most exciting thing I think is happening in the world, and this is not on the scale of geopolitics you know, with China or the things that you mentioned, but just for entertainment value, uh-huh. I think the Brexit... Fallout, negotiations, yes. Theresa Mays. I think that is the most entertaining thing going on in the world right now. I, it just If you were to set the stage, this is worthy of like a Netflix miniseries. So you have... And probably will be. It probably will be. And, and so you got this surprise kind of populist uprising. The people of Britain vote to leave the, the union and nobody's thought it was coming. You know, it was one of those things like the Trump victory where it was like all the people in the cities are absolutely shocked that there's people in their country that would vote in these numbers for this kind of, right. you know, mad Very similar thing. to the United States it, election. It is. And Very so people similar. are really surprised and shocked and dumbfounded at, at what's happened. And now they actually have to go through with it. And what I think is so fascinating is you got Theresa May, who's the prime minister, not pro-Brexit. Right. She, she took a stand against Brexit, but she finds herself in the midst of a party who is dead set on leaving the European Union. And what she's done is she's basically written the most pro-European Union Brexit strategy that you could possibly come up with. I mean, if you're going to summarize her white paper from right. Checkers, it would be like, okay, we do Brexit, but we keep all the stuff that we had before Brexit. Exactly. Which prompted Boris Johnson 
to resign. Yes, the Brexit secretary Brexit resigns. Secretary Under secretary resigns. resigns. You know what I want to see in this? Uh, just a future note to self. When Theresa May writes her memoirs, I want to read them. She shouldn't be prime minister in yep. the sense that she has been counted out. I, every week I hear, well, she'll probably be voted out in a vote of no confidence this week. And yet she's still there. There's got to be some serious political skill going on. She she is really amazing. And in, in whatever you believe about Brexit, and, and I think she is in a precarious position because she's having to draft this plan that she doesn't really agree with. But I was listening to the BBC does a great job of covering Parliament. They have a couple of podcasts, and one of the ones is the Prime Minister's Q&A from a couple of weeks ago in Parliament, her last one of the session, so until September or whenever they reconvene. And Jeremy Corbyn, who is the perfect villain you know, in this scenario, uh-huh. is just roasting her on... I mean, he, he ends his speech basically saying, you know, if you can't legislate Brexit, then move out of the way and let somebody who can do it. Or, you know, uh-huh. it's just he has nothing to lose and nothing really to gain, but he's just throwing himself at Theresa May. And she was amazing. I mean, she answered all the questions. She shot back replies. She had the data on hand. She's really formidable. She's very impressive. And uh, all the theatrics that go with British Parliament, I think, are are fascinating. And so, you know, I I like Boris Johnson. He's he's kind of that lovable, loose cannon. He, Uh He does have some Trumpian qualities to him. Um, but watching that go on has been like high theater lately. And so I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see how that ends up playing out. Yeah, that'll be fascinating. Well, thanks for listening to another So We Speak podcast. For more information, go to SoWeSpeak.com. If you like what you've heard, share it or leave us a review on iTunes. We'll see you guys in a couple of weeks.